This is actually, um, I, I didn't think of this until today. This is actually my, our, my 12th anniversary, uh, first Sunday in January of 2012, is when I started at the church. Um, and when I first started at Logansville Church, I was handed a cell phone to use. It had been in a desk. It had probably been in there for a year or so. So it was a whole bunch of voicemails that weren't for me. The problem was that the account was owned by a, a former elder who no longer attended the church. I knew who he was, but I had never met him. So I called Verizon to make changes to the account, and I needed all the passwords and such, you know. And I didn't have anything. I just had the phone. Over the course of the conversation, the operator at the other end of the line let it slip the, the first name of the person who actually owned the account. It wasn't even owned by the church. It was owned by a specific person. And I responded with, when I heard that first name, I responded with, oh, he's not with us anymore. Right. I meant he'd left the church, and in this context, it was sort of like an employee that no longer worked for the company, but the person on the other end of the line immediately assumed that he had died, and since I was willing to assume responsibility for the account, she signed it over to me. Simple as that. I'm not going to tell you if I told her, actually, I didn't mean it that. I didn't. How many more years do you think you have on earth? How many more years of life do you think that you have? How long will it be before the Lord calls you home? Or let me ask it bluntly. When do you think you'll die? I can tell you that I believe that I have 20 or maybe 30 years left. And I actually have a word from the Lord on this. It's Psalm 90 verse 10, which says the years of our life are 70 or by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Last week, I turned 50. And I really believe the Bible, and so I, I do. Um, generally speaking, I believe I'll live another 20 or 30 years. But of course, my times are in His hands. And so there's always a risk of accident or sickness or disease or but for the most part, we all know that according to the Bible, the average lifespan is somewhere between 70 and 80 years. We also know that the epistle of James clearly reminds us, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The truth is, and this is becoming more and more clear to me with each passing year, that my life is just a mist that appears for a little bit and then it's gone. I can tell you that there are events that happened 20 or 30 years ago that I remember like yesterday. Our wedding. The birth of our sons. Selling our house and moving to Ohio for the first time. We've done that twice, actually. The first time. 2001. 9-11 happened a week later. I will admit that sometimes I get just a little bit anxious when I think about how quickly the next 20 or 30 years will go by. 
And I will also tell you that it really seems like time is speeding up the older I get. <laughs> I also know that there are many in here who are older than me. And still, at least statistically speaking, have less time until death. Now I've used the D word. <laughs> the word that we don't like to use. We're not supposed to, we're not supposed to say die, death or dying. We're supposed to use euphemisms like pass away or say that they've left us. In fact, we have celebrations of life instead of funerals, most of which aren't even in churches anymore. A trend that I actually think is unfortunate. But I also understand. But I think it even goes deeper than this. For centuries, man has been looking for the fountain of youth, right? We think that if we can just get our diet right, or breathe the right air, or just add the perfect amount of exercise and sleep that we can add days or even years to our lives. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for healthy living. But as Christians, we acknowledge that our time is truly in God's hands. Yet the world has a decidedly unbiblical view of aging. So, so what do we do with all of this? How should we think Christianly about the time that we have left? Or, or let me ask it this way. How should we think Christianly about the aged? Well, Moses wrote it out for us in Psalm 90. So let's start there, and then we're going to move to Proverbs. So let me read for you Psalm 90. This is a prayer of Moses. When we think of the Psalms, we're usually thinking of David or maybe an anonymous Psalm writer, but this one is actually a prayer of Moses. Psalm 90 says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Did you catch that verse 12 said, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart 
of wisdom. Well, the acquisition of wisdom is, is really what we've been talking about over these past several weeks as we've looked at various passages from Proverbs. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Whatever you get, get insight. We've been talking about these things really within the, within the context of the family, uh, of building a family legacy. And so today we actually are coming to the end of the line in this study. And this begs the question, what about the aged in our families? Do we, do we have a plan? What does the Bible say? Well, the New Testament actually says quite a lot about caring for widows specifically. Uh, proper religious work, according to God, involves caring for widows and orphans. Again, uh, the epistle of James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows or orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for their ill treatment of widows in Mark chapter 12. God has... God has deep compassion for those who are left alone. And the church is to demonstrate that same compassion. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gives a really a, a detailed outline of how the church and individual families are to care for widows. And in Acts chapter 6, under the oversight of the apostles, a specific group of men was organized in order to care for a specific group of widows. And finally, in Titus chapter 2, Paul instructs Titus to disciple both the older men and older women in matters of godliness and Christian dignity, so to speak. Scripture clearly has a high view of, of aging and the aged. So Proverbs 16, this is where we're going to be today, beginning in verse 31, and I'm going to read down through chapter 17, verse 6. So Proverbs 16, 31 says this, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The lot is cast into the lap by its every decision, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in the inheritance as one of the brothers. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. An evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to mischievous tongue. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. Let's stop there and pray. Father, I pray that you would um, give us wisdom. Help us to understand the things that you would teach us today from your word. That we might get wisdom, which is only through Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. There is a massive conspiratorial cover-up when it comes to aging. Wash that gray right out of your hair. It's as simple as that. 
We joke that gray hair is the result of a, of a trying or a stressful life, right? You kids are enough to give me gray hair. Or I, I didn't have any gray hair when I took this job, which is probably true for me. We pick on folks with a little gray, and we envy those um, who go into old age without any. But as I said, the Word of God actually takes a different approach. Proverbs 20, verse 29 says, The glory of men is their, young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Now, if I had a tattoo, not really. I should point out that when the Bible speaks of gray hair in this way, it's using it as a symbol for something else, right? In, in Proverbs, gray hair symbolizes experience, dignity, wisdom, godliness, and always within the context of, of treating one, one's elders with respect. The Bible is not so naive as to portray every older person or every gray-haired person as being perfectly godly and perfectly respectable. In fact, there are several older characters in the Bible that are condemned for their wickedness. So we need to see this as speaking directly to the, to the godly aged, not simply everyone who is old. And these Proverbs here come out of a culture, right? The book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, it comes out of a culture that honors old age. In fact, we saw this in our study of Leviticus a few months ago, that there are commands to honor those older than you. Leviticus 19 verse 32 says, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. You shall fear your God, I am the Lord. And so in the Hebrew mind, generally speaking, the older a person was, the more respect he or she was given for possessing wisdom in their society. And so in Jewish society, in their culture, it was the elders who were, who were looked to as the authorities, the, the judges. So by way of example, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 to 21 says this. It says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother should take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now there's some implications there. One is that this son was of some kind of age. He was a glutton and a drunkard. So he was probably not a little kid. But they bring him before the elders who were sitting at the city gate. There are many other examples where the elders are given, given great responsibility within the Jewish community. In fact, this is not a minor point in the book of Ruth, where the city elders were responsible for blessing the union of Ruth and Boaz, which we saw a few weeks ago uh, on Christmas Eve, actually played a crucial role in the lineage of the Messiah. But the modern church 
has unfortunately started to follow the society in these things. We're designing our worship services around pop culture, designing our buildings to appeal to the Instagram crowd, who seem to love palettes for some reason, especially behind the pulpit, if, if they have a pulpit. But, but listen to this. The church that so easily jettisons the aged will jettison you. The church that so easily says, actually, we're going for the youth, despite the olders. Well, we all get there, and we will be gone. I don't really want to get into that kind of diatribe today, at least not anymore. So let me ask this, as we consider, as we consider the context of Proverbs, what about our families? Do we care for our elderly, or do we just expect somebody else to care for them? The government will take care of them. And by the way, that, that's not a knock on nursing homes. Praise the Lord that we live in a society where we can have some trained medical help to care for our loved ones as they age. But anyone who has ever spent any amount of time at all in a nursing home will tell you that there are many residents whose family members never come to visit them. The biblical writers honored old age, but they were also realistic about the troubles and the trials that came with it. So, for example, in Psalm 71, it was evidently written by somebody who was looking old age right in the eyes. Listen to just a few verses from Psalm 71. Do not, this is a prayer, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. And then a few verses later, he continues, O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. See, the psalmist's problem was this. Now that he was old and no longer strong, his enemies were trying to take advantage of him. And so he prays to God for God to be his protector. So while old age brings challenges, the scripture teaches us that it also brings wisdom. And that those who attain that wisdom are to be esteemed very highly. Now remember... Proverbs was, was written as a, as a father passing down the, the collected sort of ancestral wisdom onto his son, to, onto the next generation. And so this wisdom is not just simply, I, I said this a few weeks ago, it's not just simply street smarts, but rather it is the collective knowledge and application of God's word. It is, to use Paul's language from 1 Corinthians, it is to put on Christ. That's what wisdom is. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And the godly aged among us show us, they show us this, they show us what it means to put on Christ in their priorities, beginning with the priority of godly rule. 
priority of godly rule. Verse 31, chapter 16, verse 31. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. This idea of a, of a splendid crown, that actually kind of frames this whole passage. Look at down in verse uh, 6 of verse, uh, chapter 17. Children are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their father's. Now, in the scriptures, um, a crown can actually be given for several reasons. Usually, it is a symbol of, of authority and power. That's usually what we think of, actually. We think of a, the crown of a king. But it can also be given for victory. In the Greek days, there were often, um, in fact, we sometimes use the word diadem. Sometimes they were made out of plant material, um, like a vine, leaves, the more important ones were actually made out of gold or gold leaf fashioned to resemble a vine on the, the crowned person's head. Crowns were usually given as a display of honor. Now, obviously, this is a metaphor, right? Um, in some ways, uh, uh, all of these things are metaphors, but especially this is a metaphor for honor here. And yet, this isn't simply an honor an honor that is due to you because you're old, but an honor due to your years of righteousness. That's what this is saying. Again, verse 31, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. In fact, this is actually kind of a subtle um, callback to where we started this series. Think back to Proverbs chapter 4, verses 7 to 9. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. And there it is. It's a crown of gray hair. <laughs> beautiful crown that just might look like gray hair. See, Christ-like wisdom once it is attained, becomes a beautiful crown of righteousness on your head. But the implication here is that it takes a lifetime of proven faithfulness to really attain this. It takes a lifetime of sanctification. It takes a lifetime of constantly becoming like Christ. So what is righteousness in this context? What is righteousness in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs? Job 29, verse 14, tells us that righteousness is something that is put on. He says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 2. It tells us that righteousness comes through listening and, and heeding, submitting to biblical instruction. Let me just read verses 1 through 11. Titus, I mean, uh, Titus. Proverbs chapter 2. 
My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. These verses are telling us that that this kind of righteousness comes through listening and and heeding biblical instruction. Now stay with me here, because we're still in the Old Testament, which means we're still under the law. So righteousness in this context is something you put on through listening to and then doing what the Bible commands. But that's not the gospel. Proverbs 15 verse 9 tells us that righteousness comes through pursuing and cultivating a love for the Lord. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. Moreover, Proverbs eleven nineteen boldly proclaims that righteousness is actually a matter of, of life or death. Proverbs eleven nineteen: whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Now, what is the clear problem with all of this? Isaiah tells us, in Isaiah 64, verse 6, he says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. All of us. All of our righteousness are as a polluted garment. And that word means the worst thing you can think of. That's what it means. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. But... That doesn't make those verses that I read, that doesn't make them untrue. Because ultimately, righteousness is actually being clothed by Christ. Isaiah 61 verse 10 looks forward to this. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And then Galatians chapter 3 verse 27 actually makes it plain says this, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The first step in putting a priority on God's rule, on putting a priority on God's law, the first step is submitting to God's call to righteousness that only comes through salvation in Jesus Christ. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. From there, 
the righteous gray head is the one who then applies God's law in order to be conformed to Christ's righteousness. So specifically here, it is the one who prioritizes self-control, for example. Verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The quest for control So in this context, we can call it maybe something like an ambition to leadership. The scripture tells us that an ambition toward cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, something else, and (laughs) self-control. I think I got the order wrong. An ambition toward cultivating the fruit of the Spirit is better than a selfish ambition of controlling others, taking a city, making a name for yourself. This is saying that a patient person, a person who has lived a life of godly self-control has accomplished more than a mighty ruler who has taken a city. In other words, the real king or queen in God's eyes is the one who, who masters his or her own emotions and is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. This is the outworking of his righteousness, which is a submission to Yahweh's, to the Lord's rule. Again, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, the submission to God's rule. And then look at the next verse, 17.1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. He who takes a city, um, however you want to, kind of apply this to us, builds a massive company, builds a name for himself on this earth, whatever it is, if there is strife, what this is saying is that the one who takes a city will be a one who has a a house full of strife, likely. Now this isn't saying don't do great things. And that goes against what we've been saying all along about changing our legacy and all of that. This isn't saying don't do great things. Rather, at the end of your life, quiet, mature, godly self-control is far better than having it all without peace. And there's another priority here. Because not only does the godly aged prioritize God's rule or God's law, but the righteousness that comes from conforming to the image of Christ, they also prioritize the spiritual. So this is the priority of of spiritual virtue. Again, 17 verses 1 and 2. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. Now, as we look at this, quiet here is is really set over and against strife. Those are set as opposites. So the idea of a household that is marked by by peace and quiet, that's the idea. Um, It's not that the kids don't make any noise, right? This is a peace and quiet that means that the family isn't fighting all the time. That's what this means. That the household is not full of strife. 
with kids in even quiet rebellion. This means that there is a genuine peace and quiet in the family. It's a genuine peace as opposed to a kind of force kind of peace where, where everybody is just good and quiet because they don't want to offend Gramps who just yells at everybody, right? So they sit in fear. There's actually a clear irony in this because that word, that word feasting, a house full of feasting with strife, in the Hebrew there, it's literally the word sacrifices. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 5 to 7, explains that their sacrifices were supposed to be times of feasting. So Deuteronomy 12 says this, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose you out of all your tribes and put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall eat and rejoice. But the law, the law was seen as a burden for the people. That's how they looked at it. They looked at the law as a burden, and so they abandoned it. And yet they still wanted to feast. They still wanted the rejoicing, but not in the Lord. And so Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 9 tells us, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, they are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. See, just as the Lord prioritizes godliness, righteousness, and self-control over power and strength, he also prioritizes um, faithfulness over Pedigree, so to say, so to speak. That's verse 2. Let me read that again. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in the inheritance as one of the brothers. God wants us to be faithful, He wants His people to be faithful. There's actually, I don't know if you catch this or not, this concept of the comparison of a slave, a servant, and a son. This is big Onesimus energy. If you're familiar with the book of Philemon. Listen to Philemon verse 10. The apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be uh, by compulsion but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, that's what Onesimus was, he was their slave, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. 
Onesimus was a slave who Paul had, he was an escaped slave that met the apostle Paul and came to Christ. And so Paul sends him back to the church, back to Philemon as a brother. No longer as his, as his bondservant, but as his brother in Christ. This verse here is saying that slaves who are in Christ have a high standing in the kingdom of God. Even the, the lowest in our society. Even the, the, those who are nothing in our society, whatever the society is, who are in Christ have a high standing in the kingdom of God. And so as we move into old age, as you move into old age, some sooner than others, as we move into old age, will we be like Onesimus, useful for the kingdom, for the gospel? Will you be like, the, like a pillar in the courts of our God? Psalm 92, verses 12 to 15. The righteous flourish like, a, like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. They declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Will that be what we are? When we get old, declaring that God is my rock, will you be like Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were, as Luke tells us, advanced in years, but still were, quote, both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Even though... At that point, they were childless. And in that society, they had nothing. Nothing but service to the Lord. We'd be like Simeon, Luke chapter 2, who was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Or how about Anna? who did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Will you serve faithfully? Luke tells us that Anna was 84 years old when the newborn Christ was, was presented in the temple. And when they brought him in, she began, quote, this is from Luke chapter 2, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, God, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This 84-year-old faithful woman of God, when she saw the Messiah, began to tell everyone who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So let me say it this way. Getting old just happens. <laughs> it, it just happens, right? But faithfulness? Faithfulness doesn't just happen. Faithfulness requires effort. It is decades of dependence upon Christ. This shows us the priority of understanding God's coming judgment. The priority of God's coming judgment. Verse 3, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. 
An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to mischievous tongue. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, and he who is glad in calamity will not go unpunished. A crucible and a furnace are man-made tools uh, for testing the purity of these precious stones, silver and gold. And yet only the Lord can test the purity of our hearts. I'm going to close here with four quick passages. Beginning with Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look in his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks in the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Or Psalm 26, verses 1 to 3. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. This is a call for us to walk all the days of our life in God's faithfulness. We can't walk in our own. Jeremiah 31 This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Crowning glory of old age is our gray hair. But that's only through righteousness that comes from Christ. It's not because of anything that you or I have done. It's because of the work of Jesus Christ and his faithfulness that we are able to remain faithful to him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would that we would look to those who are older than us as oaks of righteousness. Those among us who have gone before us, who have grandchildren and great-grandchildren, who have trusted in the Lord for so many years and are standing in your house proclaiming your righteousness as they come and sing and pray that we would look to them and say, I want to be like that. Lord, I pray that we would be a people as we grow into old age who are faithful, who are steadfast, who have trusted in the Lord with our hearts and and not leaned on our own our own righteousness, but that we have leaned on our God who has carried us through, 
that we might be a people who finish this life to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, that we might enter into the rest of eternity with our Savior. Father, I am so thankful for my own, my own grandmothers. I'm thankful, Lord, for those who have gone before us, even at this church, I think of funerals that I've done. Those who are faithful, Doris and Phyllis, Juanita and Dave, Lord, of others that have, that many in this room never met, and yet they were faithful. Father, I pray that we would be faithful. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.